0: Psalm 113 is part of our daily Bible reading, Um, I think it was from last week, Uh, so you may have already read this if you're following along with us. Um, It's only nine verses, they're pretty short, but this psalm packs an immense amount of truth and hope. Uh, and love for us that uh, I thought it was too good not to not to bring back up if you'd already read it. And it's um, so. In, in if you have the New King James Version, you're not going to see this word in here, but other translations use this word. It's that's why I titled it um, "The God Who Stoops." In other translations, that word is found in this psalm: "The God Who Stoops." And we're going to talk about why that is such a profound thing that God would stoop down. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna s- jump to verse four. And uh, we're gonna skip over one, two, and three for now, but we're gonna come back because I think one, two, and three are the natural um, response to what we learn in verses four through nine. Uh, and, and also, an, an interesting note, just so you know, and I want you to keep this in mind and for later, Psalm 113 through 118 generally were Passover psalms, so um, they would be sung during the Passover celebration, all of them or any combination of them. And so I think that it's fascinating to think of Jesus celebrating that final Passover with his disciples, may very well have sang or sung this song, this psalm. And while I don't think the disciples understood exactly what it meant, um, as we go through, I think it's just fascinating to think what Jesus was understanding as he's saying this. Uh, Because he's going to bring this psalm to pass. It's talking about something that's going to happen and that has happened for us. So let's look at verse 4. It it says this. In verses 4, 5, and 6, we're going to get one picture of God. And in verse 7 8 and 9 we're going to get another picture of God. And they almost seem like they can't be true together. But the beauty of this psalm is that God is both of these things. And for you and I, this is the best news we could ever hear. But it says this first in verse 4, "The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, and who dwells on high?" who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heaven in the heavens and in the earth the lord is high above all nations there's a couple of things that the psalmist wants us to think and to know about the nature of god and in he only uses 3 verses to talk about them but well within them and all between the lines of verses four, five, and six, there are several things we need to keep in mind about who God is. When the psalmist says he is high above all, what he's saying is he is beyond anything that is known or seen. So the psalmists could only look up and see. They didn't have the things we have today to understand what was beyond what they could see. And all they could do is look up and see and make some observations that, well, the sky is higher than me and God is beyond that. And so what they're getting at is that God is infinite, infinitely above everything that I know. And I want to start there that God is infinite and that means he has no limitations. In no way is God limited by anything, anything that we are limited by and anything that, uh, and, and any other Limit. There is none found in God. He is beyond everything we could imagine or comprehend fully. God is higher above all. So He's infinite. And in His, infinites, infin- in his infinity, that means a couple of things. And the Psalms especially point these things out. Uh, that means He's eternal. And not just eternal future, but eternal past as well. Psalms 90 and Psalms 102, Psalms we would have already read together, point out this fact that God has always been. He never had a beginning. He'll never have an ending. He always was. He always is and he always will be. If you think back to what he said to Moses, he said, Moses, tell the people that I am. I am or I is or I be, meaning I continue forever. Nothing started me and nothing will end me. I simply am. So God is infinitely eternal. And God is immense, infinitely immense. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, There is no being, nothing else to compare to how big God is. That's the point of verses 4, 5, and 6 is to start to get to understand as limited as we can how big God is. So to try and understand as best we can or even just a little bit how immense God is, I uh, looked up some numbers to try to reference as reference points to try and see how big God is. Now, again, the psalmists all they could do was just look up and, and notice what was around them. So they didn't understand even the things we can see today that are beyond our sky. Uh, so planet Earth, right? You and I live on planet Earth, and we'd say planet Earth is pretty immense. It's big. It's much bigger than we are. And uh, in relation to the average human, planet Earth is 3.5 million times bigger than the average human. I saw a couple of numbers of how many humans you could stack together to get across the Earth. It was a big number. I didn't write it down, but it was very big. Very big, but we are tiny just compared to our Earth. And the could they could see that, right? They could look around and see what's going on on the Earth, But we today can see even further than they could. And so if you look out past the earth, the next biggest thing you'll see, or bigger than the earth even, is the sun, which we revolve around and gives us life and is important to every day on this earth for you and I to keep breathing. And the sun is 109 times bigger in diameter than the earth. And if you are to see a picture of the sun, you might see sunspots on there and The earth is generally the size of a a sunspot on the earth. Or on the sun, excuse me. A sunspot. And so the sun is way bigger than anything you and I can experience on this earth. And our solar system, that these moons and planets that are close by revolve around the sun, our solar system is one of thousands in our galaxy, if you expand your, your sight and you go to the galaxy, our galaxy is the Milky Way and the Milky Way's made up of thousands of solar systems with multiple moons and planets, a varying size, all much bigger than you or I. Things we could never fully comprehend And the Milky Way is one of about 30 galaxies all gravitationally bound together in this one little area of the universe that we inhabit. So 30 galaxies are um, all flying all around, floating all around us in the Milky Way. And scientists estimate today at least that there's at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe and who knows past what we can actually even see with the powerful telescopes and things that we have in satellites. 100 billion galaxies that we could probably spend time seeing, but who knows what else is beyond that. And so what that should remind you and I is that, according to the psalmist, God is high above all that his glory is above the heavens that's as far as the psalmist could see straight up and we can see well beyond that today but we even know that there's more to be seen than than what we do see today and so this is still true that god is above all of that so the immensity of god cannot be measured Because if he's the one who created all of these things in the universe, these galaxies and planets and moons and gravity and black holes and whatever else we find there and stars and comets and meteors, if he created all of that, by definition, he must be beyond those things. And he must be more powerful than those things. So God is huge. Much bigger than anything we could even imagine. And the best we can come up with is comparison to planets, comparison to the sky. That's the best we can do because he is so much more than you and I. He's eternal, he's immense, and he's perfect. Psalms 145, Job 11, they all talk and speak to this fact, and elsewhere, they all speak to the fact that God is perfect, If he's infinite, there's no limit to him and his character, that also must be true. So he is perfect. No defect within his character, within his morality, within who he is. So that means he's perfectly just, he's perfectly righteous, he's perfectly holy. And if he's perfectly holy, then any sin and any evil should tremble in fear. Because God, who is perfectly holy and has the power to create all things, has the power to deal with sin. So I want to spend a few moments just considering the fact that the immensity of God, while there is so much good about it, for me as a sinner, for me under the curse of evil, I have a problem and that is the great God above all things is perfect and when he looks at me if he sees sin that means that I cannot be with him. So just take a second to think about that. By our nature we cannot ever be close to this great God who is above all things. That's the logical conclusion, and that's not a knock against God, that's the way things are, and that's not to diminish him in any way, there's nothing wrong if that were the full picture, but Psalm 113 in nine short verses say that that's only part of the picture of this earth, of this world, that's only part of the story of you and I, because We don't just serve the great God above all things. We don't just consider the great God above all things. We don't just read the word of the great God above all things. We read the word of the God who stoops. We consider the ways of the God who stoops. In verse six, it says, this God who's above all things humbles himself, and in other translations, that's where it says he stoops, to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. So what does it mean that he humbles himself or that he stoops? So if I'm up here, and if I stoop, I might get down like this so I can see a little bit more on your level. I might go lower depending on how far down you are. But consider that picture for a moment. That the God who is high above all things, perfectly and rightly so, would bend down to the level of creation. The level of creation that is under the curse of sin. He's not just the God who stoops to look at and see what's going on, He's the God who stoops to save the sinner to redeem the lost. He comes down for you and for me. He comes down for us. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5, starting in verse 5. And I didn't mark it in my Bible, so as you know, when I get up here, I forget how the Bible works, so it's going to take me a while to find it. There we go. Found it. Oh, that was good. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it it says this. Let this mind be in you, this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus who is God. Who is the God who stoops. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If you go back to Psalm 113, it says this in verse seven. After it says he's the God who stoops, it says he raises the poor out of the dust, and he lifts the needy out of the ash heap. Philippians 2 and Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8, or verses 7, excuse me, and Philippians 2, verses 5 and following are saying the same thing and giving us a clear picture of what it means for God to stoop down to our level. Not just that he came to look, but that he came to save that he came to redeem, that he came to fix that was broken. He was high above all things. His standard was set. We could never meet it. We had no hope. And we were bound to death because of our sin. And rightly so. But God stooped down to pick sinners up. He was obedient even to the point of the death of death, the death of the cross. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter and we celebrate what the cross means. This tool of destruction, this brutal thing that is so important to Christians. It's so important because it represents Jesus, God stooping down and willingly taking on the punishment for our sins so that you and I would never have to hang on that cross. Because that's what will happen without the saving forgiveness and mercy of Jesus. You and I will have to pay for our sins. And rightly so, because God is above all things and his standard is to be like him. And you and I fall so short of our, because of our sin. But instead of leaving us to our fate, God stooped down to pick us up. To raise the poor out of the dust, in verse 7, to lift the needy out of the ash heap. Another translation says the garbage dump. He lifts those who are in the trash up. And where does he lift them to? Well, look at verse 8. He lifts them that, they, that he may seat them with princes, with the princes of his people. So the God who stoops takes his hands and he puts them into the garbage can and he pulls out what was trash, what was marred by sin, what was evil, what was disgusting and offensive to his holiness, to his immensity, to his perfection, and he takes it, and he cleans it up, and he puts it in a place of honor, the seat of princes. Royalty. From nothing to royalty, that's what this God, the God who stoops, does for you and for me. For any who will call on his name, for any who will acknowledge their sin and their failures before him, For any who will seek his forgiveness and love, he takes what was broken and he makes it even more beautiful than it ever was. And he sits it in the high places with him. If you look at um, John 13, there's another picture of what the God who stoops does when he stoops down to clean up what is dirty, to clean up what is disgusting, to clean up what is gross. In John 13, Jesus does something very similar, a a picture that I think the disciples must never have forgotten in all of their life. In John 13, starting in verse 3, it says this. You'll know the story. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already, have, uh, bleh, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and they had come from God, and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments. Took a towel and girded himself with it. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he has this exchange with Peter where Peter says, You can't do that. You can't wash my feet. Why are you going to touch my feet? And what's Jesus' response? I have to wash your feet. I have to do this thing. I have to stoop down. I have to get down on my hands and knees and touch your disgusting, offensive feet. Because if I don't, you can't be raised up with me. If I don't clean you up, you have no hope of being pulled out of the ash heap, of the garbage dump, You have no way of sitting with me at the royal table of God if I don't clean you up. And Peter takes it a little too far and says, "We'll clean everything. And Jesus says, that's not necessary, Peter. I know what I need to do for you, so let me do it. Uh, in Ephesians, you don't have to turn there, but, I mean, you can if you want. Ephesians chapter 2 it says this, about raising up the lowly to positions of prominence. Raising up the lowly to the, uh, to the seat of princes. In Ephesians 2, it says this, uh, Paul is explaining the gospel and what it means to be washed by Jesus the same way Jesus was talking to Peter. What it means is this. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 5. Yep. Uh, I'll start in four. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he, God, might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's not just the God who stoops because there's some obligation or because he's looking for something to do. He's the God who stoops because he wants to take broken sinners and turn them into beautiful royalty at his table because it pleases him to be exceedingly merciful and gracious. That's what Ephesians says. It pleases God to do it. He finds joy in stooping down to save sinners. There was no obligation. He's so immense. He's so perfect. He's so above everything that there's no obligation to come and save the way he did, to come and fix the brokenness, the curse of sin. There was no obligation. He could have just as easily said, well, you messed it up. You're on your own. But that doesn't please our God. The God who is above all and the God who stoops. What pleases him is showing grace and mercy to his own glory. And what it means for you and I is what the psalmist writes in verses one, two, and three. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. If you're a servant of God, you are called by this psalm to praise God. And if you needed a reason, or if you needed reminded of the reason for why, then don't forget how immense God is and above you and other than you, how tiny you are, and how he stooped down and he picked you up and brought you close to him. Praise the name of the Lord. And not just praise his name, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We call God blessed because of what he has done for us. Meaning good things for God. If we had the power to give him the good things that he deserved, that's what we're saying here. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And not just for today, not just for the moment I'm saved, not just for the moment I realize I need Jesus and that it's a free gift, not just then, not just when things are good, not just when it seems like everything's going well, but from this time forth and forevermore, if you have been picked up by the God who stoops, you are to praise his name and we are to bless the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. So, not just for the rest of your days and for the rest of eternity, but every moment in between, we are to praise and bless the name of the Lord, the great God above all who stooped down for sinners. At the end of the psalm, after verse eight, which seems very climactic because he reaches down and he grabs those things that are broken and dirty and he raises them up and he cleans them up and he seats them with princes. Then we have this verse nine that seems anticlimactic. Like we're taking a step back. He says he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Seems like verse eight would have been the best time to end. This psalm, but there's one more verse, and after that it says, Praise the Lord. Well, why is this here? What hope does this give? Uh, For a people, and the psalms were um, songs for a people in exile, songs for a people who would think that is great but I'm never going to be sitting in a seat as a prince or as royalty. That's a great picture of what God does, but I'm not going to experience that. That is so high above me, I almost can't relate to how good that sounds. I think 9 is in here, verse 9 is in here, for those in exile, who couldn't picture what it would mean to sit in the seat of princes. So we're told that God grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. And the best example I could think of how this played out was the life of Hannah. The mother of Samuel. Wow, I almost forgot his name the mother of Samuel. And you remember the story of Hannah where she is married um, and she can't have any children. And it is devastating to her. As the years go on, the devastation grows and grows. And her husband has another wife who's having kid after kid after kid. And the cultural pressures of that day meant that if you were not having kids, you were seen as lesser. You must have done something wrong. God must be punishing you for a sin. But you are not as good as those who are able to have children. And if you remember the story of Hannah, her husband, I don't know if he, he had good intentions or not, but he didn't handle it very well and he did not help her out, although maybe in his mind he thought he was trying to give her comfort He didn't, and then of course this other wife um, made it known all the time how much better she was and felt towards Hannah. And so Hannah goes to the, they go to the temple every year, and every year she continues to be devastated by being barren. Continues to wonder if she's done something wrong, if God cares about her, if he loves her. And she prays at the temple and she prays for the Lord to give her a son. And if, gives him a son, if he gives her a son, she'll dedicate him to the Lord and give him to his service. But would she please be merciful and grant her a child? And then, the God who is immense, the great God who's above all, the God who Hannah thought maybe was angry with her or upset with her or she wasn't good enough, she'd done something wrong, She hadn't atoned properly. This great God, who was even greater in her mind because of all these pressures she put on herself, all of these things that God never said was true about her. This great God stooped down and granted Hannah a child. And the joy in her song, and you can read her song in the book of Samuel, The joy in her song, you can't help but know that Hannah understands what it's like for the God who is above all to reach down and be the God who stoops and pick her up and pull her to him. And so when it says in verse nine, he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children, what it's saying is you might not know Israelite in exile, Jewish person in exile who will never know what it means to be royalty. Here's what God is like. The God who stoops is like this. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. He takes those people who are outcast, who society says are worthless, and he says, I give you worth. Not just a little bit of worth, not just not just like 50% as worthy as someone else, he gives them the name of Jesus and makes them royalty. He makes them children of the most high. And it's hard to describe this because we don't understand the, the, that society's view of this. But that would be shocking to the barren woman To those who could not have children, it would be shocking to hear that God was not angry with you and punishing you for some sin, but that he wanted to make you whole again so that you weren't just happy, but you were joyful, like a joyful mother of children, like everything that you were supposed to be was complete. There was no brokenness. There was nothing lacking. That's what the God who stoops does for you, and for me, He makes us whole in Jesus, so we can praise and bless His name. And I think the lesson here is that the humility of God is the humility His people should be showing. If God, who was above all, stooped down to put his hands into the ash heap, into the garbage dump to care for those who were broken and in need, the immense humility that he showed. If you call yourself a servant of God, you can do nothing else and you can do nothing less than love like he would love, then speak truth like he would speak truth, then put your hands where he would put his hands, then stoop down from wherever you are for those who are in need. We can do nothing else, and we should do no less. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for these examples, these psalms, these songs, these reflections of those who love you that show us what it means to follow you. So Father, I thank you first and foremost for the humility you showed in saving one such as I. And Father, I pray that I would not waste that gift, but I would use that to show the same humility, that same love, the same mercy to those who are in need, to draw those people to Christ, to make much of the name of Jesus, to be a reflection of him, so that people can see that there's hope, that there's a way to be restored, that sin and death don't have to be the final end, but that sitting at the royal table in the royal presence of the Most High King as a welcomed, not guest, but as a welcomed son or daughter. Father, help us to show people as the body of Christ that truth in how we live and what we say and what we do, and I pray that we would make much of Jesus to the world around us. In your name, amen. Amen.